Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, having died to sin, might live to righteousness. He who believes in the Son has everlasting life. He who does not believe the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say unto you, he who believes on me has everlasting life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. Before we begin our study of God's Word this morning, let's go to the Lord and ask His guidance on our study. Father, we're thankful for Your Word, that Your Word accurately reflects Your thinking. It is Your revelation to us. It is a disclosure to us of uh, Your will, Your plans, Your purposes. It informs us of all that we need to know in order to live a life that honors and glorifies You. It informs us of how we are to face and surmount the obstacles of life, the adversities, the challenges that we encounter on a daily basis, that we might live in such a way as to uh, reflect your thinking, to reflect your character, and to be a testimony of your grace, both in terms of the angelic conflict and in terms of human history. Now, Father, as we study your word this morning, we pray that you would help us to understand the value, the significance of your grace and all that's involved in it, and that you are deeply concerned with each of our lives, our problems, our challenges, and that you have provided the only solution. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. For anyone who pays attention to current events, watches uh, the television news, or gets online to any uh, news website or follows current events in any number of uh, journals or publications, we are deeply aware of the fact that in at any given moment, something could happen that would plunge us uh, back into the deep, dark ages. The economy could collapse. We could uh, face another terrorist attack that would be even greater than that of 9-11 that could wipe out the electrical infrastructure of uh, the United States or half of it. And what this would do not only to our economy but to the world around us, uh, to the world uh, at large, would be uh, unimaginable. And so we live from moment to moment with the realization of the fact that everything that we know and love and appreciate could disappear in a moment's notice. Beyond those wonderful optimistic thoughts for the new year, we also face the fact that there is a worldwide global recession, if not depression, that uh, even though we are blessed to live here in Houston, Texas, there are still those in the congregation who have faced various challenges with their employment. They have faced various uh, financial challenges, and uh, there are also those in the congregation who have felt, who face various uh, health challenges and family challenges, marriage challenges, and things of this nature. One thing we know for sure, that living in the devil's world, we do not get by 
without facing adversity, without coming face-to-face with numerous uh, challenges, disappointments that hit us usually uh, without any expectation on a day-to-day basis. So how in the world are we to face life in the midst of this kind of uncertainty and the kind of chaos that uh, reigns around us? In times of uncertainty and chaos, people often grasp at just anything in order to try to give some kind of meaning and hope to life, some sense of security. Often, unfortunately, down through the ages, this does not take the form of trusting in the God of the Bible. Instead, the human heart is set against God and in negative volition, the primary and majority response to crises in life is to leap in one of two directions. One direction leaps towards superstition, mysticism, some sort of false religion, putting our hope for stability and happiness in something that God created in some sort of false God, false religious system, or false philosophical system. On the other hand, there are those who become so embittered because they face disappointments and challenges and heartaches in life that they reject the very idea of a personal God because of their personal pain. They just think that if there is a God, he's just a big meanie in the sky who is out to get them and make their personal life uh, miserable. And so they reject any idea that there is a personal God and they take the position of uh, extreme agnosticism or atheism, and sadly they are left with no hope whatsoever and only despair and uh, despondency. Uh, Sadly, they don't want to live that way, so they leap into some sort of pseudo-optimism, just trying to give some sort of meaning and hope and value uh, to their life. And we live in a world that is characterized by numerous people who take one or the other option. But that's nothing new. This kind of thing has been going on ever since the fall of Adam. Fallen man seeks to find meaning and hope in life anywhere other than in the God of the Bible. And this was a challenge that was faced by uh, the northern kingdom of Israel in the ninth century B.C. and was specifically the focus of the ministries of two prophets that we've been studying, Elijah first and then his successor, Elisha. And since we have just been studying in the ministry of Elisha for the last several weeks, We have seen a number of these kinds of uncertain, chaotic uh, situations in the lives of individuals in the northern kingdom of Israel. Since we began the study of Elisha in 2 Kings chapter 2, we have seen the mention of bad water, water that was not potable and needed to be purified in 2 Kings chapter 2, verse 17. We have seen that the northern kingdom was involved in a war with Moab that was only marginally successful in 2 Kings chapter 3. We have seen the individual impact of the poor economy in the northern kingdom in terms of the poverty of the widow in 2 Kings 4, 1 through 7, who was left with a load of debt by by her husband at his death, and now she is so impoverished she doesn't have the food it takes to 
take care of herself and her son. We have seen the barren Shunammite woman who was married but had gone many years unable to have a child and then the miraculous provision of a child in 2 Kings chapter 4, verses 8 through 37. There's been the mention of famine in the land in 2 Kings 4, uh, verse 38 and following. Along with that, there's a second war, the war with Syria, that's mentioned in 2 Kings chapter 6, verse 2, and then in 2 Kings uh, chapters uh Chapter, I mean, Second Kings chapter five, verse two, and then in Second Kings chapter six, in the second half of the chapter, beginning in verse eight, we see another war with Syria. So the northern kingdom is facing uncertainty. If you lived at that time, uh, you're facing economic problems, you're facing famine, you're facing the threat of war on a day-to-day basis. You're faced with these raids that came in from the armies of Syria on a periodic basis where they would uh, take captives and spoil, and you might be captured as the young uh, slave girl was that was mentioned earlier in Chapter 5 and taken back to, to Syria as a slave. So there was just as much uncertainty in the world of the northern kingdom in the 9th century B.C. as there was today, as there is today. Uh, sometimes we think that our times are somewhat unique, and they are only in terms of the technology and the luxuries that most of us have, but the core problems, the core issues of life never change, and the people at that time faced the same problems, and they came up with the same solutions that people come up with today. Number one, they want to reject the provision of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They want to reject his grace. They, they don't want to rely on a day-to-day basis on the provision of God. So instead of worshiping God, they take the same two alternatives that human beings have taken for the last 6,000 years, and option one is to reject God, to be embittered towards God, to blame God for everything, and option two is to substitute something for God, something within the creation, and to worship that as the source of happiness, meaning, and life. And that is was the primary uh, way in which they were handling the situation at this particular time in Israel's history. And it is in the middle of this episode where we have gone through looking at one uh, one provision of God uh, after another in the, the last few chapters that we come to what I think is one of the strangest little episodes in all of the Scripture. Now, some of you may think other things are uh, equally odd and unusual, unusual, but I have always thought that this was, and that may be because at one time when I first went off to college, and I thought, well, I'm going to find a local church here in Nacogdoches, and I'm going to uh, be involved in that. And I went to the First Baptist Church, and the pastor was teaching on this passage that Sunday morning. I really don't remember a whole lot about what he said, but I left wondering what in the world, how he got whatever it was he said from this passage, because that didn't seem to relate to the, what the passage says, number one, and number two, what in the world is the significance of this passage? I mean, this is just a strange little event that is described in these first seven verses of Second Kings chapter 6. 
It fits within a, the scope of a number of miracles that are performed by Elisha. And as we, as I began this study, I pointed out that there were at least uh, 12 or 13 different miracles that are performed uh, during this time. But there's something about this particular miracle that strikes us as a little different. It doesn't involve a person. The other miracles all seem to be related to an individual. There's the uh, healing of the water so that the people in Jericho can can drink. There's the uh, victory, the information that is given that provides a measure of victory for the Israelite and uh, army and the army of Judah as they're attacking uh, the Moabites in the third chapter of Second Kings. There is the provision of life for the barren Shunammite uh, woman in Second Kings chapter 4. There's the provision of oil and financial relief for the widow in the first part of Second Kings 4. There's the provision of food during the famine in Second Kings chapter 4. So all of these miracles and the ones that come up in subsequent chapters all have to do with people healing uh, healing uh, uh, Naaman, who had uh, was the Syrian uh, general who had leprosy. All of these different things involve people. But this particular healing, while people are there, seems to not be of the same category. And so we often look at it and wonder and scratch our heads, say, why is this in the Bible? This seems like it has more in common with one of those sort of mystical miracle stories related to uh, middle, uh, some priest in the Middle Ages than something to do with, with the Bible and with Scripture. And if you look at biblical commentaries, you're often left somewhat wanting because this passage is often either misunderstood. A classic liberal, Protestant liberal theologians which said that this really didn't happen. The idea of an axe head, an iron axe head floating on the water really doesn't mean that. It just meant that uh, Elisha stuck a stick in the water and he poked around until he fi- found it and one uh, one uh, double PhD author says, and so he stuck the stick in the in the hole in the axe head and he was able to pull it up out of the water. They, they interpret the passage totally within a naturalistic uh, worldview. Others who believe there's a miracle there aren't quite sure what its significance is, so they just take a rather general or superficial uh, interpretation and say, well, this is just another miracle in a string of miracles that demonstrates the power and the reality of God, and that is very much true, but let me suggest that that's not all that it is. Therefore, that this passage is here for a reason, that God the Holy Spirit doesn't waste words or waste stories. There are thousands of different things that occurred in the history of Israel and in the lives of the prophets and the lives of the northern kingdom that are not that we are not told about. And we ought to address the scriptures from the beginning by thinking that if we are informed about this, then it must be important. There must be something of significance here that goes beyond just reaffirming a simple, general, superficial principle about the uh, power of God and his control and his control over uh, creation. 
And so we have to stop and resist the temptation to simply interpret this as a somewhat general or superficial principle because we know from uh, our understanding of Scripture that there's nothing in Scripture that's just there by chance. There's nothing there that is just superficial or general. If we believe that God the Holy Spirit oversaw the writing of Scripture so that every detail is not only preserved for or recorded for us uh, without error, but it is preserved for us, that there is a reason that this episode is given in Scripture. See, God the Holy Spirit has a way of, of using language in a very economic way. He doesn't waste a lot of words. He is very concise in what is written and what is recorded and revealed uh, for us, and he doesn't, waste, he doesn't waste words or waste episodes. So if the God the Holy Spirit saw fit for this, these seven verses to be in Scripture, then there must be a reason for that. One thing that we ought to recognize at the very beginning is that these miracles, the miracles of Elijah and Elisha, just as the miracles our Lord performed, are not just performed in order to show that God can do these things. Neither are they performed out of a necessary uh, goodness of the heart of the one who performed the miracle. Jesus doesn't heal everybody. Elisha doesn't heal everybody. He doesn't solve everyone's problem. Uh, Jesus doesn't go around and heal every leper in the land. He doesn't uh, cast every demon out of every person that's demon-possessed in the land. He doesn't restore the sight of every person that's blind. The reason there are miracles in Scripture is to authenticate the one, the message of the one who is performing the miracles they provide credentials for them but they are also they are also structured in such a way as to teach something specific about god they are uh, as it were visual training aids for us to understand aspects about the uh, person and the character of god so we have to understand that there is a specific reason and a purpose to any miracle that we find in the Scripture, even though that may not be immediately obvious uh, to us. In fact, sometimes we're going to have to do some digging, and we're going to have to stop and really think about what's going on in the text in order to come to an understanding of why something has been uh, revealed to us. And again, we must recognize that under the inspiration of God the Holy Spirit, these episodes that we have in Second Kings chapter 2 through chapter uh, 11 are all woven together in a tapestry of divine revelation in order to reveal something to us and to teach something to us about God and his purpose and plan. So before we begin the analysis of these verses, let me just uh, summarize a few things about what happens. First of all, this event takes place at the Jordan River, not very far from Jericho. 
So it is probably involves the group that is called the Sons of the Prophets that are located there in Jericho rather than a group that was further away in Bethel or in Gilgal. Those in Jericho were very close to the uh, Jordan, and so this they, they need to build a new home for themselves because they've outgrown their uh, their former home, and it wouldn't make sense for them to be building a new home uh, as you know, if they lived in Bethel or Gilgal, it would just be too far away. So they're probably living uh, in Jericho. This involves, as I just mentioned, a group called the Sons of the Prophets. Verse 1 says, And the Sons of the Prophets said to Elisha, See now, the place where we dwell with you is too small for us. The Sons of the Prophets were a group of primarily men who were and their families who were associated with the ministries of Elijah and Elisha. The group started with Elijah, but it has grown under the ministry of Elisha. They were involved in; uh, they were being trained by Elisha. They were uh, be, they were involved in various ministries in the Northern Kingdom, and they were being trained for future ministry under the tutelage and the mentorship of Elisha. So they were a group of uh, men that were involved in training and teaching spiritual truth doctrines to the Northern Kingdom. Now, the problem that they face is that they've outgrown their living quarters. The place where they live is too small for us. There's no room. They need a larger dwelling place, so they go to Elisha to get permission to build a new dormitory, as it were, a new dwelling place. And they ask him in verse 2 if they can go down to the Jordan, where apparently there was was a stand of trees that they could uh, cut for lumber. And they went down to... Uh, seek his permission to go down there and to cut lumber so that they could build a new dwelling place. And in verse 2, he gave permission and told them to go. And then they said, well, would you please go with us? In verse 3, please uh, consent to go with your servants. And he did. So Elisha went along with them as they went down to the Jordan. And then we're told that they began to cut down some trees. And then verse 5 says that in the process of cutting down the trees, as one man was cutting down a tree, uh, the iron axe head, there's no mention of an axe head in the, in the Greek, I mean in the Hebrew, it just says the iron uh, flew off the uh, axe handle and fell into the water. And this man cried out in despair, oh no, I can't get the job done. Is that what he said? No. Now this is, you know, this is important. He's got this axe head, and they're, they're accomplishing a job. They want to build a ha- house, and without the axe head, they really can't get a lot done in terms of chopping down the trees. Why doesn't he say, "Oh, I can't get the job done"? What does he say instead? He says, "Oh, master, it was a borrowed axe head." See, the emphasis is on property and property ownership, and respect for private property. The emphasis is not on getting the job done. Isn't that interesting? He is concerned about the fact that he can't get this axe head back to the owner. At this time in history, iron is is rare and precious. Earlier during the uh, time of, the, of the, the period under Samuel, when the Philistines were dominating the 
uh, the North, uh, well, well, the Israelites in the, about 200 years earlier, there were, we're told in uh, 1 Samuel that there were no blacksmiths in the land because the Philistines would not allow them to function or operate in Israel. The Philistines were exercised in, were exercising an early form of arms control. They did not want the Israelites to have blacksmiths and to have iron weapons because the Philistines had iron weapons. They had the more advanced technology, and they didn't want the uh, Israelites to have the same technology they had so that it would be easier for them to dominate and control the Israelites. That's always the purpose of any kind of weapon control is so that somebody in power can more easily control and dominate somebody else. Because if those people that you want to dominate have access to the same technology, the same weapons technology that you have access to, then it's not so easy to uh, dominate them and to control them. So we always have to remember that whenever you hear of any policies related to restricting uh, gun ownership, uh, restricting uh, any kind of international treaties, restricting uh, the use uh, or the presence of various kinds of weapons, that it's always related to one group wanting to dominate and control another group, and that has been true throughout history. So we're in the early Iron Age, and iron is a rare commodity. It is very expensive. And so when this axe handle flies off and sinks in the water, this guy is looking, his bank account just evaporated. He just lost his 401k plan. The stock market just crashed. His employer called him up and said, well, there's no longer a job for you and you don't have any means of income. And he is looking at uh, a life of indentured servitude. His life flashes before him in an instant. I want you to hold your place here in Second Kings chapter 6 and turn back with me briefly to uh, Exodus chapter 22. Exodus chapter 22 gives various laws related to uh, the ownership of private property and respect for private property. And this shows a very heightened sense of the importance of private ownership of property in Israel. If you look with me at verse 14, we read, And if a man borrows anything from his neighbor, and it becomes injured or dies. Okay, if he borrows anything, whatever it is, an animal or or just hard property like an iron axe head, if anything happens to it, and if the owner is not present, then the one who borrowed it should make it good. He has to pay for it. And so this son of a prophet is looking at this. You can turn back with me to Second Kings. Is looking at this, and he's saying that, oh, no, under the law, I have to pay pay for this. 
and I don't have that kind of money. This is extremely expensive material, and he is very sensitive to that. This is his immediate response. I think a lot of us today need to have a greater sensitivity towards uh, property rights and the respect for what other people own, and especially among uh, a lot of young people, we've lost a sense of teaching that today. I remember when I was uh, growing up in school, and I'm sure this is true for many of you, that if anybody, any kid in the class did something that did damage to anybody else's property, we would get a lecture from the teacher about respect for other people's property. And this was really drilled into us. I don't think that is something that is drilled into uh, children as much today as it has uh, at other times in our uh, in our history. So what we see here is that this individual is really concerned about the economics of the situation and that he has lost this axe head that he has to return or pay back for. And so when he, this cry of concern goes out, then Elisha, simply referred to as the man of God here in verse 6, says, well, where did it fall? And so the man points out to him where it fell in the Jordan River, and uh, Elisha then goes and cuts off a stick and threw it into the water, and the axe head floated to the top. And Elisha then instructed the man to pick it up, and he reached out his hand and he took it. And then the episode stops. And there's no indication of its significance, its meaning, its application. It just we're told about this floating accent, and we scratch our heads and go, "Okay, I believe God can do that. I don't understand it, so let's just move on. Let's close in prayer." But we have to stop and think about this. This doesn't just happen in isolation. That's another people problem people have is that they'll go to a text like this and they will read it in isolation from the surrounding context. And so context is is extremely important whenever we are uh, studying any passage of Scripture. And one thing we should remember, I mentioned earlier the importance of inspiration, but in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul wrote, and he was primarily referring to the Old Testament, remember, when he said all Scripture is breathed out by God and it's profitable for doctrine, for teaching, that is, for reproof, correction, and instruction in righteousness. Okay, so this passage is designed to teach us something, to in, instruct us in righteousness that we as believers may be thoroughly equipped for every area of service. Hmm. I'm going to have to think about this for a while, aren't I? And so we have to stop and reflect upon what's going on. We have to take this literally because there's nothing in the passage that would indicate that he is talking in a non-literal manner. Now, what I mean by that is that we have to recognize literally that this happened. This was a historical incident that it actually occurred just the way it is described. Now, that does not mean that the passage may not have some sort of symbolic meaning because many things that happened in the Old Testament like this were designed to teach a spiritual truth and they're used in a, and the things that happened, uh, happen in a, uh, for a reason to teach and to illustrate, uh, a spiritual truth, a spiritual reality. 
So we have to stop and we have to think about it a little bit. We have to think about what's been going on in the previous chapters, and we have to think about what's been going on in the history of Israel. And so we have to look at context, the immediate context of Second Kings and the broader context of Israel's history. So let's start with the broader context of Israel's history. In Leviticus chapter 26, God made some promises to the nation Israel. He said, if you obey me, then I'm going to do these good things for you. You are going to have economic prosperity. You're going to have success in whatever you do. You are going to have military success. It doesn't matter how many, how large the armies are of your enemies. It doesn't matter what their technology is because I'm the Lord and I will fight for you and you will have victory. And so in the first 13 verses, there's the explanation of how God is going to bless Israel economically and militarily. Notice how these things tend to go together. Bad economics, bad military, good economics, good military, they tend to relate to one another. So God promises them economic prosperity and military success if they're obedient. But starting in verse 14, God begins to outline five different uh, stages or cycles of discipline, punishment, that God will take the nation through if they are disobedient. And disobedience primarily relates to idolatry, and violating the Mosaic Covenant and worshiping other gods. That's the first two commandments in the, in the Ten Commandments provide that foundation that you will have no other gods uh, before me and that you would worship no other gods. So uh, God outlines those areas of discipline, and they include military oppression and defeat, economic collapse and drought, as explained in Leviticus 26.19, famine in Leviticus 26.20 as part of the second uh, cycle or second stage of divine discipline. And then in the fourth cycle of discipline, this is intensified. There is further economic collapse. There's an increase of disease or pestilence. There's an increase of famine and the rationing of food. Now, we're going to see that when we get into the last part of this particular chapter and into the seventh chapter where there is just uh, incredible lack of food and the increased exorbitant price of food and rationing of food that is part of discipline. So when we read through all of these episodes that we've looked at with the barrenness of of the uh, Shunammite woman, which is a sign of divine discipline, the uh, economic collapse, the mention of famine, the mention of uh, loss of pro- productivity, the mention of uh, military conquest. All of this shows that the northern kingdom of Israel is going through an intense stage of divine, uh, divine discipline. And as they did this, the reason for it was because under the Amrit kings, with Omri, the father, his son Ahab, who married Jezebel, um, Ahab's son uh, Ahaziah, and now Joram or Jehoram, that the nation has been under idolatry. Of course, this first started with uh, uh, Jeroboam the first, but it intensified down through the years, and it's become extremely uh, dominant at this particular at, at this particular time. And the more extreme the uh, discipline of God became, the more the people seemed to react to God and to blame God 
for all their problems and to question God's goodness and mercy and grace. And that's no different today. There are people who, whenever things really get start getting tough for them, the first thing that comes out of their mouth is, why is God doing this to me? Now, that is, that's pure paganism. Now, there's a right way to ask that question if you're saying, well, am I under divine discipline or not? But when you ask the question in a sense that God is out to get me, then you're just operating on pure paganism at that point because we're living in the devil's world and we're always going to go through different categories of adversity and different categories of suffering, whether it involves our health or finances, uh, various pressures and demands in our jobs or careers, uh, problems in our marriage or families. We have to recognize that God still loves us. God is still in control. He is sovereign. Nothing is happening uh, by chance. God is not uh, more involved looking at the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, and somehow he missed something, and this uh, has uh, blindsided you. Uh, he, God is still the God of grace and mercy. Now, when we come to a passage like this, and an episode like this, we have to fit this within the context of Second Kings now. The northern kingdom is under divine discipline. They've been rejecting God, and now it is time for them to learn that God of Ab- the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is the God of grace and mercy. And that's what we've been seeing in all of these different episodes, that God's grace is sufficient. The woman the, who was impoverished by her husband's indebtedness was told by Elisha to gather up all of the uh, various uh, vessels and containers that she could find in her village and then to start take, taking the meager amount of oil that she had left in that bottle, and then to begin to pour it out into all of the other containers and that she would fill them all up, and then once she had filled them all up, she could sell what she didn't need to pay off the debt, and then the rest would sustain her and her son, which is exactly what happened. He's showing that God's grace is sufficient. He raised the Shunammite's son from the dead after he had died. He heals the poison stew. He multiplies the bread so that those who are famished uh, are able to be fed. He is demonstrating the grace and the mercy of God. So when we come to the floating axe head, the first thing we have to say is this has something to do with teaching about the grace and the mercy of God. That's what this whole context of Second uh, Kings is talking about. The second thing we have to realize is that this is part of a uh, this is part of a polemic against. Baal. This is part of a polemic against Baal. Now, two words characterize all of these episodes from that we've been studying with Elijah and Elisha from Second King, I mean First Kings 17, all the way through the life of Elisha. And those two words are polemic and apologetics. Now, what is a polemic? According to the Oxford English Dictionary, a polemic is a strong verbal or written attack. doesn't go any further than that. Webster's 11th edition states that it is an attack against the opinions or principles of another. But Webster adds another element to the definition. Webster defines polemic as an aggressive attack or refutation of the opinions or principles of another. 
Now, this is standard operating procedure throughout the Old Testament. First time I really paid attention to that word was when I read a master's thesis. I think the author was named Webb at Dallas Seminary who wrote a great master's thesis showing that everything in Genesis 1 was a polemic against the Canaanite gods. God is constantly showing that he is superior to the false human viewpoint systems of the world around us. And he's been doing this since uh, uh, 1 Kings 17 or 18 with uh, Elijah on Mount Carmel showing that Elijah, I mean, that Yahweh is the true God, the living God who brings fire down from heaven. He is the true source of fire, not Baal, the God of lightning, that it is Yahweh who provides life, gives Elijah the ability to uh, raise the widow's son from the dead. All of these different episodes are designed to refute the pagan belief system that is dominating the culture and to defend the truth uh, of God's revelation in the Mosaic Law. That's called apologetics. That's the other word that that we use. Apologetics simply means to give a well-reasoned answer for what we believe. It doesn't mean to apologize. It's from the Greek word apologia, which comes out of the uh, Greek culture, a courtroom setting, and this is what a public def- a defender, a lawyer, would do in presenting a case in defense of something. And so you have these two things that are going on constantly in these passages, a demonstration that the the Baalism, the all of the idolatrous religions that dominated the northern kingdom were false, and demonstrating that what God said was true. You have both the negative and the positive. So in these chapters, the scripture is showing, God is showing that Baal can't provide what he was supposed to provide. In the Canaanite religion, Baal was the god of rain and thunder. Thus he would, the rain would come, the crops would grow, the farmer would be wealthy because of all that he was able to grow and to sell. And so Baal thus became the god of success, the god of prosperity, uh, the god of sexuality. So the whole system of Baal worship represented uh, success and prosperity. And what God is showing in all of these things is that Baal cannot provide life. He cannot provide success or prosperity. The more they worship Baal, the more God is punishing them with famine and military uh, defeat. Uh, Baal is the God who supposedly brings life or comes back to life. It's sort of a false resurrection motif. In the fall, the beginning of winter, he goes down into the netherworld with the god of death, who is called Moat. And then at the end of winter, he would rise again and he would bring uh, spring. It's this false sort of uh, resurrection idea. And... Uh, the worship of Baal was conducted through various orgiastic sexual activities that even included animal sacrifice. So what we see in Baal worship is this deification of nature and this worship of success at the expense of human life. Gee, doesn't that sound familiar today? We do the same thing. We are see so many people worshiping nature, worshiping the environment, worshiping success at the expense 
of human life and attributing uh, meaning and value in life to something other uh, other than God. So this episode on the floating axe head really focuses on those same themes that we have been seeing all the way through in these other other passages. Let me just point out uh, three or four of those. First of all, it is a reminder that God is in control. Even though this accident has occurred and this valuable iron axe head has been lost in the water, uh, God in his sovereignty exercises mercy. He is concerned about the problems of this individual son of the prophets, this individual who is now facing economic catastrophe. God is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is concerned about the details of the problems in the life of each individual. Second, there is there are a couple of things that are going on here that are related to a symbolic significance. One is the symbol symbolic representation of restoration. Restoration is what occurs when failure has taken place or a loss has taken place. There needs to be a restoration. Israel is represented by the axe head. Israel at one time was usable by God when they were uh, in obedience and they were uh, on positive volition, but now they are not usable. They have been lost to divine service, but God can restore them to service. But that has to take place through a spiritual cleansing. Water again and again through the Old Testament represents that process of cleansing, of spiritual cleansing that takes place in order for service to take place in the temple. And so this axe head has been washed or cleansed in the water as it is now restored to usefulness. And so there is a picture here of restoration that is possible, but only through uh, cleansing. A third thing that is depicted here is the idea of uh, resurrection, the idea of resurrection. That which has been lost represents death, and then it is brought back to usefulness, which pictures the fact that God and God alone can restore life, just as we've seen this with the episodes of uh, bringing the Shunammite child back to life, the episode of bringing the widow of Zarephath child back to life under the ministry of Elijah, the uh, emphasis that it is God and God alone who can bring life where there is death. When the uh, Shunammite, who was barren, suddenly is able to conceive and have a child, that is a picture of God as the one who can give life. It is not Baal that gives life. It's not science that gives life. It's not modern technology that gives life. It is God who gives life. And last of all, it is a picture of regeneration. It is a picture of regeneration, that God is the one who can regenerate the spiritually dead human being who is not usable or useful to God. God can give him new life, and that new life comes through uh, the water and the blood, as Jesus said to uh, Nicodemus in John. You have that same imagery that's used again. It's picked up in Titus 3.5, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit. 
And so we have this, this symbolism that is going on here that you have this axe head that is something that is valuable that is lost, rendering them unable to uh, go forward in their operation, and God is the one who restores it. It recognizes the legitimacy of the concern of the uh, individual who is concerned about the fact that he can't pay the price. He can't pay for it, but it is God who provides the solution and restores him. So we think of those same ideas of redemption and restoration. God is the one who pays the price for us. He's the one who makes it possible for us to be usable in his service. And so the floating axe head is not simply some odd little story that somehow snuck into the Bible about this strange little miracle, but it fits the flow of what's going on in the ministry of Elisha again and again, emphasizing the principle that God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, is the God of grace and the God of mercy, the God who is concerned about each of our individual problems, and he is the God who provides the solutions to those problems with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study this passage of your word this morning, to be reminded that you are indeed sovereign. You are in control of the events of history, the events of our lives, and that even though we face uh, catastrophes and we face all manner of adversity in our lives, we know that you also are the one who provides the solution and that your solution is the only real solution. And the ultimate solution was provided by Jesus Christ at the cross when he died as our substitute, paying the penalty for our sin. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning that's unsure of their salvation or uncertain of their eternal destiny, that they would take this opportunity to make that sure and certain. All that is necessary is that you believe Jesus died on the cross for your sin. Scripture says, he who has the Son has the life, but he who does not have the Son of God does not have the life because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. The issue is belief. The issue is faith. And it is the offer of salvation is a free gift, and all we have to do is accept it by faith alone in Christ alone. Father, we pray that you would challenge us and encourage us by what we studied this morning. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.